are at the Review of Democracy, the journal of the CEU Democracy Institute, where we discuss some of the most exciting new publications concerning the past, present, and future of democracies across the globe. I am Ferenc Lotso. I co-head the History of Ideas section at RefDem, and I have the special pleasure of hosting Andrew Port today. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Thank you, Ferenc. I'm really glad to be here. We are thrilled to have you at the Review of Democracy. Andrew Port is a professor of history at Wayne State University. He is the former editor-in-chief of the journal Central European History and a recipient of the DAD Prize for Distinguished Scholarship in German and European Studies. Now, Andrew Port's newest book, which we are here to discuss today, is titled Never Again, Germans and Genocide After the Holocaust which offers a thoughtful and in-depth treatment of a difficult subject. Now, you argue in this new book, Andrew, that German responses to organized mass slaughter in foreign lands can reveal a great deal about German values, mentalities, and also the lessons drawn and learned after 1945. You focused in the book on a 20-year arc between the 1970s and the 1990s, which you call a period of decisive and often drastic change. And you explore German responses to three genocides in particular, the ones in Cambodia, Bosnia, and Rwanda. So first of all, how would you describe and compare the German responses to these three atrocities? And what shifts over time do their study allow you to highlight? Well, I, I would say the main difference, and this of course has a lot to do with unification in 1990. Um, the main difference was, well, even considering committing troops to um, help stop genocide, um, and in the case of Bosnia, eventually a willingness to combat troops. Again, that was the result of unification. Germany had now regained its sovereignty. It had greater room for maneuver. Um, there was also a greater sense of international responsibility. Verantwortung, responsibility, was really one of the buzzwords of this period in the in the early um, 1990s. Uh, two decades earlier, or a decade and a half earlier, in the late 70s, uh, in in Cambodia, German military involvement, any type of participation involving, say, the Bundeswehr. Um, it would have been unthinkable, not not even um, not even a question at that point before unification. But it was uh, it was much different uh, during uh, the events in Bosnia. But I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to give the impression that all of a sudden after unification the Germans were willing to commit troops all over the world to stop genocide. Um, some Germans certainly uh, called for that and supported that. Um, but what's interesting is that at the same time that Bosnia is taking place, Rwanda is also taking place. And there also, there is no question of, um, of, of sending troops there. Why the difference? Well, I think uh, in Bosnia, first of all, it's in Germany's backyard, right? It's a, an hour flight from Munich, a day's drive from Berlin. Um, the fact that so many refugees from Bosnia were in Germany, some 350 to 400,000, um, I think that obviously played an important role as well. Genscher's role in the um, uh, Foreign Minister Genscher's role in the recognition of, of, of uh, Slovenia and Croatia and how that contributed, some argue, some don't believe that, but contributed to the conflict um, there. Uh, the, the, the Rwanda, again, it's it's more 
they feel much more ambivalent about it. It's very far away. There's no sense of historical responsibility in Rwanda, even though Rwanda was part of Germany's largest colony until uh, 1918, its largest colony in Africa. There's really no sense in the early 90s and 94 when the genocide takes place there. There's no real sense of Germany's uh, colonial past. I think, and I hope, of course, this doesn't take place, but if there were another genocide today in a place like Rwanda, a country with which Germany has a, a historical connection, I think I think the reaction uh, might be um, a, a bit different. So the question of military involvement is a major difference between the late 70s, early 80s, and then the early 90s. Um, but in other ways, the responses were quite similar. Verbal condemnation, um, a willingness uh, and commitment to offering humanitarian assistance, both official you know, by the government uh, and also from below by private individuals, NGOs, uh, etc. In the case of Cambodia, humanitarian assistance was very politicized, and this had to do with Cold War tensions between East and West Germany. So the East Germans were quite willing to provide humanitarian assistance to Cambodia directly after the Khmer Rouge is overthrown. Why? Well, the Soviet Union was uh, very close to Vietnam at the time. The Vietnamese had set up a, a puppet government there. So because of the Cold War constellation, the East Germans were you know, really hands-on there. I write a lot about the uh, first East German ambassador to, um, to Cambodia, Rolf Dach, who did a great deal of, of, of humanitarian work there uh, and really pushed in East Berlin to, to have the GDR uh, help, help the uh, Cambodians. The West Germans, again, because of the Cold War constellation, they tend to limit their humanitarian aid uh, to refugees who are stuck in, in, in Thailand, so right on the Thai-Cambodian uh, border. Um, one last point, if I, if I might. Um, memories of the Third Reich, I would argue, play a fairly similar role in all three, three cases in terms of the language used to describe what is happening in these countries, these genocides, the allusions, direct or indirect, to Germany's uh, own history, certainly true during the Cambodian genocide in the late 1970s. And this is exactly the point where the Holocaust is really starting to become a major topic in German public discourse. You, you just can't compare it to what it's like in the early 1990s with Bosnia. Almost every uh, comparison uh, is, is, or there always seems to be some sort of undercurrent of, or allusion to uh, what happened in the 1930s and especially the 1940s in Germany. And again, that is because of the shift in Holocaust memory over the course of the 1980s, where it really becomes a fundamental part of public discourse, and I would argue of, of West German, in particular, West German um, identity. Thank you so much. That's a very substantial and fascinating uh, introduction to the subject we're going to be discussing in more detail and depth uh, today. Now, your book is interested primarily in what we might call reckoning with the past indeed. That is to say the concrete social effects and also political consequences of contemporary uses of memories. Uh, that the past should play a role in the present was a point on which many, uh, at times almost all Germans, could agree. Uh, you emphasize, even if they actually drew diametrically opposed the lessons from their country's fraught history. 
did the Nazi past oblige Germans to take action to prevent atrocities? Or did it rather compel them to refrain from intervening at all? Uh, this amounted to a really moot question, I would say. So the phrase is never again war and never again Auschwitz could point to different conclusions, uh, which is again something you emphasize uh, in the book. So what were some of the more consensual issues in these German debates that you have studied and which points proved to be most contested? Well, first of all, I, I, I want to give a, a, a shout out to my wife here, Sylvia Tauschka, who's also a historian. She was the person who came up with this lovely phrase, um, reckoning or coping with the past indeed, which in German, originally I spoke of Vergangenheitsbewältigung, dealing with the past, Vergangenheitsbewältigung by proxy. We were sitting around talking about it in the sense that when Germans talked about these other genocides, my impression was that in many cases they were dealing by proxy with their own past. Um, but since I spent so much time in the book talking about their concrete actions, she said, what about Vergangenheitsbewältigung in der Tat, right, indeed? So that's where that came from. I really, you know, I, I, I want to give her due credit for that. But in terms of um, some of the more consensual issues uh, in these debates, when it came to Cambodia, both in East and West Germany, East Germany only really starts to talk about in public the Cambodian genocide shortly before the overthrow of the Khmer Rouge. It's not a topic before them for obvious reasons. It really didn't make for great headlines to talk about, you know, Southeast Asian communists or so-called communists who are, you know, mass murdering their, their citizens. But I think some of the consensual issues were one, a sense of shock and outrage. Um, secondly, there was general agreement in East and West Germany, but then in the 1990s, I would argue across all of the political parties, that Germany had to, it was incumbent upon Germany to provide some sort of humanitarian aid and also to take in refugees. And in both of those cases, German history played an important role, right? They were reminded very much of their own uh, history, uh, for example, as refugees in the late 1940s as refugees from East Germany in the 1950s until the wall, wall is built. So, you know, as you say, or as you know, I write in the book that they, the German history was, was ever present. But what I found most interesting was the fact that they drew different, depending on whether or not you supported a more active armed intervention, uh, you, um, the lessons of German history were interpreted differently. In other words, everyone agreed that German history played some role, but what that role was, that varied, right? You had on one side, uh, those who believed in the 1990s that troops, German troops should also be involved in actions taken in Bosnia, saying, look, because of Germany's past, specifically because of what Germany did in the Balkans in the 1940s, Germans today have a duty to help prevent further atrocities from taking place there. Others argued, and these were people primarily on the left, but not just, not just. Um, their argument was, you know, look, we've sent enough soldiers into the world uh, over the past uh, 50, 60 years, you know what I'm talking about, in the 1940s. Uh, now it's time to you know, help in different ways. Economic sanctions, fine. Um, humanitarian aid, fine, but you know when it comes to soldiers, 
leave us alone. You know, we're burnt children, so to speak, uh, when it comes to that to that issue. Uh, thank you so much for that. Now, it is clear that uh, memories and perceptions uh, of the Third Reich of Nazi Germany and Nazi crimes, uh, such as most importantly the Holocaust, have shaped attitudes and influenced behavior in response to reports of genocide uh, in other countries. An intriguing aspect of this book of yours, I think, is that while German history indeed weighed really heavily on many participants during the debates, this was not necessarily in the way that foreign observers may assume or may have wished, perhaps. Uh, among others, uh, you show that the ways Germans responded to mass violence abroad would often also revive their own sense of victimhood, in fact. So would you care to comment on the roles played by memories of having been victims as compared to those of having been perpetrators? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to do so. In both cases, well, in all three cases, there was, again, this sense of a duty to act, to do something. What that something was, again, was up for debate. But when it came to Germans' own victimhood, um, and I hadn't, I should probably have, but I hadn't expected to find this, I, I assume the main point of reference uh, would have been German actions as perpetrators, as you know, the people who had committed what is commonly considered to be uh, you know, the most horrific genocide of the, the 20th century. Um, that certainly played a role, but um, the sense of German victimhood, what Germans themselves had suffered, especially in the 1940s, during and in the immediate aftermath of World War II, um, that was also a, a, an important point of reference uh, for uh, many Germans. And the two most important points of reference, and I already re mentioned one of them before, uh, was their experience as refugees, right? Um, after World War II, um, and in the 1950s, East Germans as refugees moving to, uh, well, escaping to, to West Germany. Uh, another important frame of reference when it came to this issue of German victimhood or being re reminded of Germany's own past um, were the horrific rapes that were being committed in Bosnia, uh, primarily against Muslim women. That dredged up um, very painful memories, memories that had been, I don't want to, speaking cliches here, but tended to be uh, taboo on both sides of the wall uh, for different reasons uh, after 1945. Um, so the, the memories of being a refugee oneself, the memories of, um, of, of what had happened to German women, um, not just in the Soviet zone of occupation, but primarily in the Soviet zone of occupation, that really served as a motivation uh, to help to help others. And um, you know, as you know from reading the book, I spent a great deal of time talking about individuals who were very much involved in such efforts. Um, Rupert Neudeck, for example, a gentleman who, as a young child, when he was five years old, had to flee from uh, the former Eastern territories uh, and, and, and went west and experienced um, you know, really horrible, horrible uh, uh, events as a child. Um, another person I write at length about is Monica Hauser, who is a gynecologist. When she heard about the terrible things going on in Bosnia to these Muslim women, decided to actually go there herself and uh, help out. And then she told me, I, I interviewed both of them, as both of them emphasized their own past experiences 
played a really determinative role there. For example, Hauser told me um, that her grandmother had been uh, raped by her grandfather uh, shortly after the war. And her grandmother told her that, uh, and that really sparked, I guess, her initial interest in, in German crimes during, during World War um, II. So as victims, there's certainly um, th th this, this sense of identification with others who are suffering in the present. Uh, as perpetrators, even if they drew different lessons from this, it seems to me that the, the sense of a duty to assist, to stop the carnage in Bosnia, not in uh, Cambodia, of course, that wouldn't have really been a, a possibility in the, in the late 70s, but this idea of a need to assist to do something um, had very much to do, I believe, with Germany's past as a perpetrator country. Mm -hmm. Great. I think that's a very nuanced and convincing answer. Now, we certainly want to talk more about some of the key actors and some of the most important acts uh, later on. But I wanted to ask you a slightly more uh, theoretical uh, question uh, before we would do that, because comparisons and even the very comparability of uh, Nazi crimes, especially of the Holocaust, uh, these questions have been highly sensitive in Germany, and they have again been extensively discussed in more recent years. So may I ask what your detailed research has revealed about how such comparisons, or alternatively the thesis on the uniqueness of Nazi crimes, been used? What can we say about the politicization of such comparisons, or the politicization even of the very permissibility of comparing, if you wish? Um I would say this. I think that comparisons are fine. I remember once hearing the great French political scientist, Alfred Gosset, I guess this was one of his uh, prepared comments and talks, but it was a very useful one. He said that um, he, he really doesn't like when people say you can't compare two things, because when you say that, you've already compared them, right? Okay. I think it's okay to compare, pe compare. people who have read Michael uh, Rothbard's book, uh, Multidirectional Memory, will be familiar with the arguments that why that's quote unquote okay and what its benefits are. The problem that I have and that many people have with such comparisons is the fear that it might lead to a, uh, a relativization of one's own crimes, in this case of German crimes. So if the Germans are making comparisons uh, between say what's going on in Bosnia and, and their own crimes in the 1940s, that that's somehow um, a, a way of downplaying one's own uh, guilt or um, historical responsibility. That's the perception, right? And, and th that that is sometimes done. And I can understand why people would react allergically to that, but it doesn't have to be the case. One can compare without necessarily um, undermining. The left was, a German left was especially sensitive to this, um, to the possibility of trivializing uh, the Holocaust, uh, although I have to say the way in which many on the left in the late 60s and 1970s used the Holocaust, I'm thinking of you know members of the RAF referring to themselves as uh, as Germany's new Jews, that to me was was a real <laughs> relativization or downplaying of the of the the, the gravity of, of of the Holocaust. At any rate, when I went into this project, I was very very sensitive to language, right? I, I carefully read um, newspaper articles, debates, commentaries, et cetera. Um, I was very sensitive to language, to any signs on the part of Germans uh, somehow 
relativizing their own past when talking about what was going on in these other three three countries. And there's some evidence of that. I was really surprised at how often Germans, this was even true of East Germans during Cambodia, uh, or right after the, the, the genocide in Cambodia, would uh, use superlatives to describe what was going on there, right? This was the most, uh, the most horrific crime, the most horrific genocide that had ever happened. Um, I think that upon reflection, you know, Germans might be a little more careful to phrase it that way. I don't think they were trying to trivialize their own past. I think more that they were trying to um, convey their own sense of, of shock and outrage about what they were uh, reading, you know, about what was going on in these other countries, um, you know, especially given these claims about the uniqueness of the Holocaust, right? That's one of the great dangers of calling something unique. If it's unique, it means it can't happen again. Now, I'm not saying that what happened in Cambodia, Bosnia, or Rwanda was a repeat of the 1940s in Europe, right? I mean, that, that would be silly. Every, every uh, genocide is in some way uh, unique, right? But I, again, I, I don't think that the Germans tried to use these other genocides to, to, to make that point. Where they flirted with it was in the case of Cambodia. And I just want to say a, a few quick words of, uh, about that. Um, some of your listeners might be familiar with the historical stride. I think you mentioned it before, the historian's controversy of the uh, mid and late 1980s in West Germany. It was set off, of course, when Ernst Nolte published um, a very provocative piece in the uh, Frankfurt Allgemeine Zeitung, this rather center, right center uh, newspaper in Germany, um, in which he described what had happened to the Jews in the 1940s as belonging to a long line of mass atrocities and uh, genocides, uh, which he argues goes back to the French Revolution. And he's not the only one who's made that argument. I remember when I was a graduate student reading Simon Schama's uh, book Citizens about the French Revolution appeared in 1989, just in time for the for the um, for the commemoration, the 200th anniversary. Uh, he also uh, draws, and if I'm not mistaken, it's been a while since I've read this, but if I'm not mistaken, he draws a, pretty much a straight line from the atrocities committed in the Vendee uh, in the 1790s uh, to to um, to to Auschwitz. Now, that was one part of Nolte's argument that was so. Uh, controversial at the time. Even more controversial was this idea that the Holocaust was a response to atrocities that the Soviets, that the Bolsheviks had uh, committed uh, on their own territory in, in the 1920s. Okay, how does that relate to Cambodia? Well, the historical tide itself, the historian's controversy erupts in the spring of 1986 with this article by Nolte. He's attacked then uh, by Jürgen Habermas, right, a very uh, progressive, um, very famous sociologist out of Frankfurt who accuses him of relativizing the, the genocide of the Jews. So I was curious about that. I knew that during the debate, allusions were made to Cambodia. I know that at least one article had an image accompanying it of the skulls of victims of, of the Khmer Rouge. But I did some additional reading. What I found, this, this I found really fascinating, Nolte wrote a precursor to his 1986 articles, a lecture that he held in Munich in 1980. What's very interesting about that is that the article, the, the lecture starts by referring, if I remember correctly, obliquely to all of the recent interest in Germany in 
this called final solution, right? What he's referring to, again, indirectly, but anyone who's hearing this at the time is going to know what he's talking about, uh, was the effect that the American miniseries Holocaust had on public debate in Germany on interest, emotional interest, uh, eventually scholarly interest um, in, in, in the Holocaust. So that is one thing that is on his mind in this embryonic version of, of the 19, of the, the controversial 1986 piece. But where it gets interesting is that later in this lecture, he quotes at length from Neues Deutschland, which was the communist organ of, of, of the SED, of the East German Communist Party. You know, who would have thought that, um, that Anas, Anas Nolte read Neues Deutschland? Actually, he did, and I interviewed him years ago, and he told me that he didn't read Neues Deutschland. He probably got that from the FHZ, from the conservative newspaper. But he quotes at length from Neues Deutschland. It's a statement by the new regime in Cambodia that refers to concentration camps and other illusions in that are quite clear, uh, clear clearly reminiscent of the, the, the Third Reich. And that then leads him into his points about, well, um, this, what, what the Khmer Rouge did uh, is, is, a, is a, it has traditions on the left, right? Again, going back to the French Revolution, he's not the only conservative making this claim at the time, but he makes it here. So again, I found this very interesting, this juxtaposition of writing about the Holocaust miniseries and its effect on uh, public discourse uh, in West Germany at this time, and then bringing up the Khmer Rouge. That's not by surprise. There's a very good reason for that. The same month that the Khmer Rouge were ousted from power, January 1979, by pure coincidence, that was also the same month that the Holocaust miniseries was shown in West Germany. And I, I forget the exact numbers, but I think a quarter of all West Germans saw at least one episode. So I was very interested in that, the connections that were then possibly drawn subconsciously, consciously. I think it comes out quite clearly in Nolte. I mentioned before that I interviewed him years ago and asked him about that, and he denied that there was any connection. He, he said, no, no, uh, his thoughts about genocide and, and, and the left, leftist uh, traditions that, that um, you know, uh, came long before the revelations about Cambodia. But clearly what was discovered had taken place in Cambodia in the, in the 1970s had, had an effect on, on his thinking in this kind of, of, of discourse and discussion about uh, genocide and the uniqueness issue. So again, without, I don't want to talk, uh, you know, speak too long here, but again, I, I, the uniqueness issue is a fraught one. Um, I personally think it depends on um, a motivation, what one is trying to do. And it's very difficult to get to people's motivations, right? Um, so you have these accusations that somebody is trying to relativize the Holocaust by invoking it. Um, I think in some cases that's very true. I think, uh, in, I would like to hope in most cases that it's not. It, it's a way for people invoking the Holocaust is a way for them to express their outrage, to express their shock by, uh, by looking to what is commonly considered to be the worst crime of the 20th century. Great. Thanks so much. I think, again, these are really fascinating uh, connections you have just highlighted, and they are definitely worth exploring uh, further. One of the great strengths of this 
book, uh, the way I have read it is that it really highlights also Eastern Germany. You have, of course, uh, written very important works on the Eastern German uh, history uh, previously. Uh, and here also the entanglements are, of course, very interesting and, and, and they really uh, receive uh, due attention. So I wanted to ask a bit about that. Uh, first of all, how do you see the similarities and the differences between the two German states until 1990, until the so-called uh, reunification? Uh, and then maybe connection with that, we could also go a bit into the various political parties and political actors uh, that were there under the uh, Western uh, multi-party system. So uh, not only to talk about the, uh, the two uh, German states, but also how much overlap there was between, say, the conservatives, liberals, uh, social democrats, greens or the, or the leftists, and what may have distinguished uh, these parties uh, from each other. Well, I think I made this point before. I was struck by the similarities between the ways in which East Germans and West Germans, especially in the media, talked about the Cambodian genocide. Similar language, similar allusions to the Holocaust and the Third Reich. Um, the allusions to the Third Reich did not surprise me in the case of East Germany, but the allusions to the Holocaust certainly did, given the widespread claim that East Germans were, did not talk about the Holocaust, that, that Jews were considered, in a sense, second-class um, victims. Um, from the work that I did in archives, so reading about what German officials and diplomats are saying behind the scene, uh, scenes, and what they were uh, saying in, in, in the media, writing in the media and these you know, official organs, um, clearly, the Holocaust, they wouldn't have referred to it in that way, the final solution, the genocide of the Jews, was clearly a topic. Um, I talk a bit in the book, actually, I talk at length in the book about these documentaries that were made by uh, two renowned East German documentarians, Waldeinowski and, and Gerhard Neumann. And there also the comparisons to, or the allusions to the Holocaust are, uh, are readily apparent. But this is, I think, I don't know if it's a more important point, but I certainly think it's equally interesting. And that is, um, and this came out in a number of interviews that I did for the East Germans, the question that seemed to preoccupy them most, at least those who were, you know, committed socialists or communists, was how had it been possible for so-called communists to have um, carried out such atrocities in Cambodia. Now, I think most Westerners would look at that as being a bit disingenuous. Well, you know, come on, you were certainly, at least since Khrushchev's secret speech in 1956, we, you know, it's no surprise that communists have also carried out atrocities. But um, I think it would be wrong to just dismiss that issue uh, or, or that concern or that reflection, how it had been possible for communists as somehow disingenuous. I think that for those who really believed that communism offered a different, a better path, that was a very difficult issue for them to, uh, to come, come to terms with. Now, turning to the West, it's very difficult to generalize about the responses by the West German um, parties because divisions went through all of the parties and all, and in fact, sometimes divisions went you know, within individuals themselves about what the right thing to do was. 
Grosso modo, again, and I think I made this point before, conservatives were more open to military intervention. I don't believe because of the reasons attributed to, the, to that by, by uh, those on the left in Germany, that they, that they wanted to create a, another German Großmacht, that they wanted to you know, throw their weight around. I think there was a real sense of the weight of responsibility on the part, again, also of conservative Germans that something um, needed uh, to, to, to be done. Um, and I should hasten to add, and, and again, this gets into, it gets back to my point about it's hard to generalize, many liberals, many progressives also called for some sort of military intervention. We're talking now about, about uh, Bosnia, right? I'm leaving Cambodia behind for a second. Even in a newspaper like the Tats, the Tageszeitung, which is you know, a very progressive uh, leftist newspaper associated with the positions of the Green Party, there were journalists, uh, I, I, most of the journalists who were covering the events in Bosnia from the region, right, who were on the ground there, were calling for intervention. These are people who were, <laughs> one of them, Thomas Schmidt, um, whom I interviewed, he told me that he, he's Swiss-born. He was um, he was put in jail in the early 70s in Switzerland for um, uh, what the Germans call Fahnenflucht, for, uh, for going AWOL when he was recruited because he did not want to, uh, because he was such a pacifist. And Thomas Schmidt, by the early 90s, seeing what's going on there, uh, was loudly calling in his articles for, for intervention. And, and I would just add to that that as an American, I found that a bit surprising how porous the line was uh, between editorializing and reporting. In the United States, in our you know, serious newspapers like the Washington Post or the New York Times, uh, we pride ourselves, one can argue about whether or not this is true, but we pride ourselves on, on maintaining a strict division between editorials and articles. And what I noticed very often in Germany was the, the disappearance of that, of that separation um, between the two. But the greatest commonality on the part of all the West German parties was that something had to be done. What that something was, again, varied humanitarian aid sanctions in the case of Bosnia, military engagement, but there was a great uh, consensus across all parties, and I would say also across the, the Berlin Wall, that something needed to be done to help these people, that the Germans had a responsibility to help. Mm -hmm. Great. Again, beyond uh, political parties, you also study what you call softer responses. Uh, for example, you explore questions of uh, civil engagement, uh, humanitarian aid, help that was provided for refugees and, and, and such uh, questions. And this allows you, uh, among others, uh, I would say, to highlight uh, the undeniably beneficial uh, consequences of, of memory work or the attempts to, to deal with the past uh, after 1945. Uh, so could I ask you to highlight some of the main examples of such softer uh, responses? and how the shapes that they took may be connected to this German process of dealing with the past? Yeah, I mean, I think you've already uh, touched upon them in your question, and I also alluded to them, um, you know, uh, before, the assistance given to, above all, uh, refugees. In the case of Bosnia, the assistance given to uh, rape victims, right, a willingness to, you know, Chancellor Kohl and Foreign Minister Kinkel made an announcement that any a uh, woman who had been the victim of rape uh, in Bosnia 
uh, would automatically be accepted into the federal republic. I certainly think, as I said before, that that was motivated by past experiences. Again, not just as perpetrators, but also as victims themselves. I recall one behind the scenes conversation between uh, Hans Dietrich Genscher, who was the foreign minister, and as most of your listeners know, the foreign minister in the late um, 70s, early 80s, who uh, was speaking with one of his counterparts. I, I, I forget which country, I believe Thailand, but he explained to, to the prime minister, I believe it was the prime minister of Thailand, he explained to him um, that Germany's own experience with, uh, with, with flight, with having to leave one's Heimat, one's homeland. And that was true, by the way, for Genscher himself. He fled from East Germany to West Germany in the 1950s. But that explained why Germans were so open uh, to, to uh, taking in these refugees. Now, of course, uh, there is eventually a backlash against this. You know, there's, all, there's sympathy for refugees as long as it's not quote unquote too many, but that is, um, that, that's, that's another issue. Thank you so much for that. Um, I think a really intriguing aspect uh, of this uh, book is, and you already uh, touched on this uh, slightly earlier, is that the discussions and debates concerning mass violence in foreign lands also modified the perceptions and interpretations of Nazi German history, uh, not least by altering the image of genocide perpetrators uh, or also of communist uh, history, really, when it, when it comes to the case of Cambodia, of course. Uh, so would you care to comment on these, what we might call influences running backwards? Uh, that is to say how the genocides on these three different continents then impacted the sense of the German past within Germany. Again, you, you touched on this when discussing Nolte, but I think there's more uh, to it. Yeah, you know, we historians claim to, uh, we look our biases in the, in, in, in the eyes and, you know, and, and acknowledge them. And, and, but of course, all of us are biased. And when I began this project, my expectation was that there would be a relativization of Germany's own past in response to these, um, to these horrible reports in other countries. And as I said before, in a sense, in a sense, that was true for Cambodia during the Historica Streit. I think it's wrong to accuse Nolte and others at the time of somehow downplaying German atrocities. If one carefully reads what they wrote at the time, they are in no way doing that. The problem with these debates, and you know, we had it recently in response to this catechism controversy that began with uh, Dirk Moses's um, uh, piece, um, is that tensions ratchet up. People say things, there is a counter reaction to that and 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 they kind of spiral out of control and people it's what the french call a dialogue de sourds you know a dialogue among the deaf where you're not really listening to what the other person is saying so much as listening to what you think or expect that person um is saying so again with i think that nolta and his supporters became more radical over time in terms of their views but at the time of the Historica Schneid, I, I think, uh, at least at the beginning, um, I don't see some sort of conscious effort to downplay the, their country's uh, own past. When it came to Rwanda, um, I don't think there was much of a sense of how that might affect Germans viewing their own past, because, as I said before, Germany's colonial past was not really an issue at that time. 
right? Um, when there was certainly discussion among Germans about the causes of the genocide in Rwanda, and they would point to the colonial period and basically play on the idea that this is a bit of a cliche that it, you know the, the the tensions between the Hutus and Tutsis went back uh, to the Belgians and the way in which Belgian colonizers played these two uh, groups um, against each other. Very few, very very little mention, I should say, of uh, what role Germans may have played in that. And again, as I said before, Rwanda belonged to what was you know it was on the territory that at the time was was Germany's uh, largest um, uh, colony uh, in in Africa. I want to share one anecdote because it's very difficult. One speculates when, at least I, I'm speculating when I'm writing or thinking about how contemporary genocides affected Germany's understanding of their of, of their own past. But when I was writing the book, I remembered uh, something that I had witnessed in the spring of 1996. Um, and, and I'll just share that with you uh, briefly. That was the spring that Daniel Goldhagen's book, Hitler's Willing Executioners, came out. And there was a big furor in, in Germany about that. And I was there at the time re doing research for my first book, which was on East Germany. And I had the opportunity to see Goldhagen debate uh, a number of prominent German politicians. Jürgen Kocko was there. Um, I forget who else, but I know that Hans Mommsen was also on, on, on the stage. And Mommsen at one point um, was getting angrier and angrier at, at the way the, the discussion was going. Um, and and the, the, they start, he started to talk about the Einsatzgruppen, you know, the you know, small units that had carried out the mass murder of, of entire Jewish villages in 1940-41. And he said that these men, when they went into these villages and were killing these people, they didn't know what they were doing at the time because they were in such a frenzy. The word he used was Rausch. And at that point, Goldhagen, I will never forget this, grabbed the microphone and said, is anybody else here in this room? And it was standing room only. It was at the old um, synagogue in the Fasanenstrasse in, in Berlin. Um, he, he said, does anybody else in this room other than uh, uh, Professor Mommsen really believe that these men didn't know what they were doing. Well, if Mommsen were upset before that, he got even more upset at, at, at this point. I, I thought it was kind of unfair of Goldhagen to, 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 to take advantage of that. His point was that in the heat of the moment, they didn't know what they were doing, that they were just carrying out atrocities without you know, thinking of moral issues. And, and I, I don't think, the imputation on Goldhagen's part was that this was somehow exculpatory or playing down what they knew and their guilt. I don't think that was his point. I think his point really was in the heat of the moment, they didn't know what they were doing. Okay, why do I mention all that? Because of this one word that Mumsen used, and it came back to me when I was doing the research on German reactions to the genocide in Rwanda, and that is this word frenzy, Rausch. That was one of the most common words used in the spring and early summer of 1994 to describe what the uh, Hutus were doing, that they were in a frenzy, they were in a rausch. Now, I'm not saying that, and again, as I acknowledged before, a lot of this is speculation. I'm not saying in that moment 
that that um, that Hans Mommsen was thinking about the Hutu genocidaire. But I think the fact that he used the similar that same word makes me wonder, speculate about the effect that these other reports might have had on his own understanding. In other words, unlike in Cambodia, there were people who, there were journalists who went to Bosnia, and, and we're talking here about Rwanda, at the time and interviewed these perpetrators, right, very shortly after they had committed these crimes. So all of a sudden, you're, you're meeting so-called ordinary Rwandans or ordinary Serbs um, who are committing these awful um, atrocities. And I think my suspicion is, and again, it's very difficult to, to prove this, but my suspicion is, is, this, is that this um, exposure to um, ordinary people creating, carrying out extraordinary crimes had some effect, again, very difficult to pinpoint how, but some effect on how Germans like Mums and, and others thought um, about their own past. And I think, you know, I, 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 you know as a historian, we're, we're not here on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, so I'm trying to be nuanced and not, you know, giving this, you know, one-sided, um, exaggerated claims here. So that's why I keep using the words uh, speculate and careful. Um, I think there's some evidence, I think there's some evidence that revelations about what happened in Bosnia, especially in Bosnia in the early 1990s, did have an effect on how Germans thought about their own past. And what I'm referring to here is the backlash, especially, not only, but especially on the part of, you know, German progressives against um, all of the attention that was given to the Holocaust. I'm thinking about people like Martin Walzer, who in the late 1990s um, talks about the Holocaust being used as a moral cudgel. I'm thinking of Jörg Friedrich in his book, um, Der Brand, which uh, fire, I forget what it, the English translation of it was, but talking about um, referring to the bombing of German cities in the 1940s as a Holocaust. That is a word he uses. I'm thinking of Gunther Grass's uh, book in Krebsgang, um, Crab Walk, uh, in which he also reflects on, and, and I found this fascinating about that novel, where he reflects on the negative consequences of quote unquote, too much attention to the negative aspects of the past. And, and and not enough attention, supposedly, others would argue with this, but not enough attention being given to Germans' uh, own sense of suffering. So I think these things, they're, they're interrelated, or as the Germans would say, uh, interweaved, verflochten very much. Um, and again, I, one speculates, I'm speculating here, but I think there are pretty, um, pretty clear connections um, between these later genocides and how Germans start to think about, rethink, reevaluate their own their own past crimes. Now that is really fascinating. I think it really shows that there is a huge horizon here, which is to think about perpetrator studies in a more transnational perspective, right? German debates often seem to revolve around German historical questions, but in fact, there are many influences that come from outside Germany, also from contemporary history. And I think that really needs to be factored in much more when, when we try to analyze what people are saying and how they are uh, interpreting uh, the past. And I think, again, your, your book points uh, to several very important uh, possibilities avenues to uh, to do this.
I'm glad you used the word transnational. As you know, that's very trendy right now. It's what many, many of us historians are, 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 are doing. Uh, and I guess in a sense, the book is transnational in terms of more when I write about Germans going over there or bringing refugees back and those kinds of non-governmental interactions. But I wanted to just briefly mention one of the reasons how and why I got involved in this topic itself. I teach at Wayne State, of course, I've been teaching it for the last 20 years. It's called World History since 1945. And it was a great course for me because I got to learn about the history of all of these other countries and developments that were not Germany related after World War II. And that's really what sparked, uh, it, it was one of the impetuses. There are others I could talk about, but I won't right now. There were other reasons why I wrote this book, but that, um, you know, professors are also often talk about how research informs uh, their teaching. Interestingly enough, in my case, my own teaching had an effect on my research and the topics I, I chose. Uh, and, you know, many of us who, who focus on one country, like Germany or France, you know, we, um, we tend to focus just on that country and not look at, at, at the rest of the world and, and other influences. And I was glad I was able to do that uh, in, in this book. Great, that's a great addition to the to the conversation. And I can want to return a bit to to the case of Germany uh, in closing, because you know there's been a lot of talk about so-called Titan Wende, a kind of change of epoch since uh, last year. A lot is going on. Germany seems to be very conflicted in many ways about how to, to what extent to change at all, uh, what may be necessary in the current uh, moment. And you indeed uh, show that there are novel aspects uh, to the ongoing debate uh, in the country, uh, but that also that the policy changes we have been observing since uh, the escalation of uh, Russia's aggression against Ukraine, uh, these are policy changes that have indeed started decades earlier, right? If you go back to the 1990s, we see uh, the origins uh, of, of much of what is now uh, taking a, a stronger shape, if you wish. So as a last question today, uh, could I ask you what strikes you the most about the German response to Russia's war of aggression? And also how your book may help us contextualize and understand better where Germany, whether it's political elites or, or the important uh, social actors in the country have arrived uh, today? It's a great question. As, as you know from the book, I, I uh, and, and at the urging of my editor, I added a, a brief epilogue about the German response to uh, Ukraine. Well, I guess the first point I would make is that for all of the claims that this was a Titan vendor, an epochal shift. Um, I, I think there is pretty much a straight line. Well, no, it's not straight. <laughs> it's rather crooked, but there is a line between uh, what happens or the debates and the policy decisions in the early 1990s uh, toward Bosnia and the debates today about Ukraine. Okay. Uh, the most important being that something had to be done, right? This is a, a neighbor and we, we have to somehow, you know, we just can't sit on our hands here and, and, and look on. So in a sense, there were similar debates about that, about actual involvement. Um, the question of sending armaments was a major debate, and not, of course, just in Germany in the early 1990s, with people on both sides of the issue uh, offering really compelling arguments, arguments that, again, going back to what I said before, often had to do with the so-called lessons of Germany's um, own history. 
whether or not Germany should send troops to Ukraine uh, has not is not an issue. That is a a, a difference. Um, it's not an issue yet. Who knows what's going to happen uh, down down the road? Um, another similarity is um, this sense of doing of a of a, of a need to do what is in Germany's own interests. Now, I'm not saying that as a um, you know political scientist of the realist school, um, because Germany's own interests also have to, or the sense of Germany's own interests uh, don't have to just do with with uh, power and influence, but also with the role of history, and that too plays an important role in German debates uh, today about the response to Ukraine. But here's the major difference, and this is what I found really fascinating. The role of Germany's past um, plays much, is, is considered much less important in terms of what uh, Germans should do in response to Ukraine. Uh, Germany's past is used to uh, attack uh, Putin. That I remember one of the debates in our Bundestag that I read, uh, one of the politicians said, is that the lesson um, of never again war, right? Again, that term never again is used, never again war um, needs to be applied to, to the Russians. So again, there is, a, there is talk of the past, of the Nazi past, but not as much in terms of how that should influence what Germany does in response to the situation, but instead to say that there are Nazis again in the world, they're not in Ber Berlin or Bonn, uh, the Nazis in the world today are in Moscow, and that's why Germany needs to send weapons and remain firm against uh, Russian uh, aggression. So that is what I see as a major shift in the, uh, in the tenor and content of the debate. Thank you so much for that response and providing all these insights today, Andrew. Thank you, Ferenc. It's really been a pleasure being here. Thank you for your, for your questions. The pleasure has been all mine. I have been discussing with Andrew Port today, whose essential new book, Never Again, Germans and Genocide After the Holocaust, has just been published, and it amounts to a very important read. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about it. Until the next conversation here at the Review of Democracy.